Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. I'm Stephanie J. Block. And I'm Mary Lee Fairbanks. And we host Stages Podcast. Binge close to 100 episodes. Hear the inside stories from backstage and behind the scenes as we go beyond the resume and into the heart of creativity and what it really takes to be in the business of show business. Don't miss our chats with this season's Tony nominees. If you love theater and entertainment, you are going to love Stages Podcast. Subscribe to Stages Podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts and visit us at stagespodcast.net. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Family Secrets is a production of iHeartRadio. Brooklyn Heights was an enchanting place to grow up, but as far as I could see, it was also a world that tended towards stiff lips and alcohol over transparency and self-reflection. A world, a time too, perhaps, that championed achievement and less so emotional truth. Nothing was named in this beautiful world. We were what we put on every day. We were the stories we told. We were the food, the wine, the linens. There's a strength to this approach, a relentlessness of survival and success. And I learned early that this works for some, that this for some will always be enough. For others, would be more than enough and more than they had. I also learned that this was not what I needed, that there was a danger even when the choreography of life depends upon the denial of so much of the rest, of all that is messy and undeniable, of all that is human. Success even becomes a wicked word when your own definition of it is different from that of the ones hoping for you to succeed, when it becomes clear that it's you who is different. That's Chloe Shaw, author of the luminous memoir, What is a Dog? Chloe's story is tender and beautiful, and at its center is about the secrets we hold in our innermost selves, the ones that don't allow others to know us and rob us of our voice. It's also about the saving graces all around us, if only we know where to look. I'm Danny Shapiro, and this is Family Secrets. The secrets that are kept from us, the secrets we keep from others, and the secrets we keep from ourselves. I'm an only child. We ended up, when I was about 18 months old, in Brooklyn Heights, New York, due to my father's job as an architect. And, you know, I grew up in this pretty dazzling, historic section of New York City, a very tight-knit community in many ways. 
the first house we moved into, you know, I barely remember, but the real big memory from that house was the death of our first dog, Easy, who was my parents' first baby. I just remember her collapsing on the kitchen floor, and then I never saw her again. And you were how old? I was probably four. The first house Chloe does remember well is on Pierpont Street, also in Brooklyn Heights. She and her parents move into the three-floor brownstone shortly after Easy has died. The house is in a massive state of renovation when they move in. Her father is an architect, after all. But eventually, the work is finished, and the house becomes a home. He would walk up the front stoop and come into the vestibule, and there was a big grandfather clock, a beautiful clock that um, has been in my family for many, many years. And you'd go up to the first floor, and that's where the living room and the dining room and the kitchen were. I feel like kitchens, they're where people collect. So much happens there. So we spent a ton of time in this tiny, tiny kitchen where my mom um, had a catering business from for a bunch of years of my childhood. And then upstairs on the second floor were the bedrooms. We all had our spots in the house, probably being an only child, but also just all of us being the people we are and were. It wasn't the kind of situation where we'd often be all hanging around together in the living room, playing a board game or, you know, unless there was a specific meal or an event or friends over. What were your three spots? They were the kitchen, usually for my mom. My dad was in his study, so that was also actually on the, on the first floor. And I was in my bedroom with my dog, Agatha. Agatha, when I was six, was a puppy. It's funny, in my mind, I thought we had her for a few months at least, but I talked it over with my mom. I think it was just like a few days. It's amazing what childhood sort of, you know, what trauma and, and, and memory can do. So, and Agatha was, what kind of dog was she? So she was a Scottish Terrier, and my dad had gotten her for me for Christmas, and she had Parvo. So before we even got her, she was gravely ill. And I, I actually just found this little book that I wrote. It's just my scribble, and it says, we got a dog, and I liked her, but she died, and I cried. Sorry, I don't mean to laugh. That's an entire... No, no, it's... That's a novel. I, I know. When I found this, I thought, wait, I already wrote this book. Because then it says, before we took her to the vet, she got very sick. I loved my dog, and I still cried. <laughs> and there are pictures of me throughout with this little sad puppy um, who, yeah, was never well. And she died, and that was a really... I mean, like I said, I remember Easy dying. I remember watching her collapse in our kitchen. Um, and the disappearance of her, I guess, is what really stays with me. She was an Afghan hound, and that's a big dog. And she was just gone. I'm sure my parents did say something about, you know, I knew she had died, but I, don't, I didn't know what death was then. You know, that was death. That was my first experience. And then after Agatha won, your mom took her to the vet, right? Yeah. And a, another dog in your life, well, and another being that you love, vanishes. That's right. As a child, what was your relationship with your mother and with your father like? It's hard to talk about just one of them at a time, which is kind of interesting to me as I'm realizing that. It feels sort of like my only childness, where I kind of had one at a time. So whatever was happening, often it was just my dad and me or my mom and me, um, even if it was like a conversation or, you know, an event that was happening. When we were a threesome out in the world, it actually felt the strangest to me. Um, I think, I think it felt confusing because I think I always felt like I was a little bit like either on my mom's side of whatever was happening or on my dad's side. So to know me as myself was kind of scary in a way. 
About six months after Chloe loses her puppy, Agatha, to Parvo, her family gets another dog. They name her Agatha Two. Agatha Two would be my beloved until I was 18 years old. I mean, she was my whole childhood. One thing that I processed kind of in retrospect was that my mom, I found out only in my 30s that she had had a miscarriage in our old apartment with Easy. So when we moved, you know, they lost their first baby, Easy, and then their actual second baby. So this would have been a younger sibling for you? A younger sibling, exactly. I mean, I don't know how far along she was, but I know they were kind of trying to figure out their that at that point their small little Brooklyn apartment and um, who would sleep where kind of thing. But as we all know, that grief was just carried along into the new house. I always think about that and how much I knew about that or didn't know, you know, and then to have our puppy die so quickly. That's really interesting. So you're saying you were in your 30s before you ever knew that. I suppose miscarriages are often things that parents don't talk about. Do you feel like it was... um, somehow there in some way, shape, or form, despite not being talked about? The way I think probably most things that aren't talked about are, yes, absolutely. And, you know, my family does tend in that direction uh, completely, you know, to just try to keep a stiff upper lip and, you know, carry on. So, you know, even the death of Agatha 1 was so striking to me because that was the little puppy who had parvo. And it was the first time I remember seeing my mom cry. And one of the only times I feel like in my life I've seen her cry. She came around the corner to tell me that our puppy had died. And my reaction to her crying was to laugh. And I just, I started laughing hysterically and like within a snap started sobbing because I realized what the reality was. But the emotion there was so uncomfortable to me. Um, you know, I think all those emotions that aren't shared are really are really difficult, and they're everywhere. I mean, they kind of just find places to sneak in. Agatha Two, let's just call her Agatha from here on in, is a container for Chloe's secrets. Into this wee dog, Chloe pours her whole self. She shares with her everything as she writes, scribbled inside the bright red cabin of her heart. I would always just find her. I mean, my room was a really special place to me. It felt like a completely safe place that I made my own. But almost even more than that was Agatha. So wherever she was, I felt alive and I felt safe and I felt just adored and adoring. So we would have little adventures just even in the house, you know, I would, I mean, the way I still do, honestly, I lie kind of nose to nose with her. I would kind of breathe in her breath. And I just felt like I felt more known by her, which is kind of a strange thing to say, I guess. But she just was calm and quiet and funny and just accepted me however I was. I think, you know, in the bigger world I grew up in, I felt a little bit more like I was supposed to be the good girl all the time. And I was supposed to, you know, look presentable and hold myself together. And of course, I didn't always feel that way. But I don't remember feeling in a way that I couldn't do that except when I would (laughs) cry in front of Agatha. So she was my little witness. My parents put on these incredible dinner parties and um, just beautiful surroundings, beautiful people. And I was kind of expected to, to show up and be present. And they've always been much more social um, and out in the world in those beautiful ways and, and where I've wanted to kind of crawl under the piano with my dog quite happily. So, you know, I found my favorite people. I made it work, but it just was never, I don't know, it never felt natural to me. And I think partly it was because I didn't feel seen or known in those spaces. 
I felt a bit more like I was performing. We'll be right back. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins, and this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then... Fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This need to show up, to perform, leaves Chloe feeling anxious. She has recurring fears and an active imagination that tends to run away with itself. 
She retreats into her room more and more, but her fears find her there, too. My room was kind of my safe place, and I felt very known there. And I felt like when I would get into my bed at night, even when I did have this habit of seeing sharks swim through my room, Agatha was always on my bed with me, so that made me feel okay. I can't describe them any better than they are in my mind. I saw these big sharks, and I was terrified of sharks, and they would come through my room. I was scared of wolves coming into our Brooklyn apartment. And I guess I lived with this controlled response. Like, I wanted to control all of that as much as I could. Um, The same way I wanted to control the world around me. I mean, making someone upset or disappointed or like whether it was a friend or my parents or whoever, there could be nothing worse. So I was, I was also just a constant peacemaker, but at the great expense of, I think, who I felt like I really was often. And I think in, in the world of dogs, you know, that's not That's not a known thing, so it felt more comfortable. Did you ever tell anyone at that time about the sharks and the wolves? My parents knew that I was scared. I was scared of the dark. So as long as I was in my bed, I was okay. You know, I didn't know how to communicate it in a helpful way, um, and they didn't probably know how to hear it in a helpful way. I think they loved me, they were loving, but it was... Also, just a very uncomfortable situation to have come up for them, you know, to know how to handle it, to be someone who's not okay. They are both very loving people, but I think they've sort of done the best job they could do with how they were parented as well. You know, emotional honesty was not a huge theme in their household either. As Chloe continues to see sharks and wolves around her, she develops obsessive behaviors as a way to exert control over the otherwise uncontrollable world. She begins to bite her fingernails. She begins to walk differently, like a horse galloping. She begins to rip strands of hair from her head and tie them to doorknobs of the places she and her family visit. A way of whispering, Chloe was here. Thinking back, over that behavior, I almost see it as kind of letting the world know I was there. You know, because I often the most present feeling for me has been wanting to disappear, to want to just not be seen, even though that was probably what I most wanted, because that's what I wasn't feeling, was really known or seen. You know, being visible, I was visible, but not known. So one of the things you write is these feelings I was trying not to feel were starting to take a toll. Yes. I think so often I was hiding, not wanting to be found or not thinking I should be found. But it it does feel like there was a message that I was kind of born into of not, not actually being known for who I am specifically. But Chloe doesn't always know who she is specifically either. She grows increasingly confused about where and if she belongs. In addition to hiding her feelings, she starts to physically hide herself, too, under the piano at her parents' parties with Agatha at her side. She starts to dissociate, too, just kind of float away. Even when she has her first kiss, she's not exactly there. Poor Thomas, a very nice kid, but I didn't want to kiss him. And so, you know, I agreed to because I thought that's what I should do. But yeah, I just went off and I found his dog in the other room and kind of just said, all right, get this done and went off somewhere. So I do think that it was it was mainly a, a feeling of not wanting to be where I was and to be who I was. Whenever there was a big emotion, and it could be a really wonderful emotion, or it could be a really terrifying emotion. Both were uncomfortable for me. I would kind of float off into some other world, you know, that I had. 
It could be with my dog, and it could be walking like a horse, which I, it was also a little bit obsessive, but it could be just really becoming a horse. A couple of years later, in 1986, Chloe and her classmates are watching the space shuttle Challenger launch, and with so many others around the world, they witness its devastating explosion. This haunts Chloe. It's an awful thing to witness, proof that life is terrifying and tragedy is everywhere and it's real, reaching far beyond the sharks and wolves in her bedroom. But even though so much of the world is grieving and scared, Chloe still hesitates to feel her deep feelings. The world she's growing up in doesn't seem to tolerate such depths of emotion. I did feel deeply, and I found outlets for those feelings in certain ways. And then when I wasn't able to share them um, because they didn't feel accepted, I do feel like they bottled up. And, you know, sometimes it would just, they just happened. You know, the Challenger was a big one for me. And my mom, she was, it was almost like she didn't quite know what to do. So she told me to write to Ronald Reagan. And I did. (laughs) And I got a letter back from him, which was exciting just to get a letter from the president. But she kind of had these ways and my parents had ways of orienting me a little bit when I think they didn't quite know what to do. I think crying, you know, crying was a thing in my childhood where it was very distressing to my parents when I would cry. So I tried not to. I think don't cry was kind of a refrain in my house. How would they respond if if you started to tear up about something? My mom would ask, you know, why are you crying? Don't cry. You know, that would be kind of the response which she and I have talked about as, as I've been an, uh, an adult. And, you know, she's always saying how she didn't want me to feel the pain, but I was also trying to say, but that's real. And I think the refrain was similar in her house. It wasn't emotionally open, like crying's fine, or saying I love you. You know, I, Mike Berbiglia, who's one of my favorite comedians, he always talks about how his parents say I love you by saying, take care. <laughs> and I just think that's the funniest thing ever. You know, that's not dissimilar in my house. I know I'm loved, but it also means something to say certain words and also just be seen for who you are and for what your emotions are at any moment. Crying is a release. And if we're told not to cry, all that sadness has no place to go. It's a little like keeping a secret. Keeping a secret doesn't mean it vanishes. It just means it gets stored somewhere not very comfortable. And one way or another, it finds expression, usually in a distorted, toxic way. It's the same with Chloe's pent-up tears. They just have to go somewhere else, somewhere hidden. I think the three of us, my parents and I, have spent multiple occasions all being terribly sad or stressed out, and the main work that's happening is to not cry. We'll be back in a moment with more Family Secrets. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
a new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins, and this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. When Chloe's in the eighth grade, she's walking home from school one afternoon and that feeling of wanting to disappear overtakes her. There's a group of boys trailing behind. Some are her friends, but she'd rather just keep moving, not say hello. But then one boy catches up to her and gropes her. This is horrifying enough, but the other boys in her group, her friends, just stand there and laugh. They don't help her. A herd mentality kicks in, and for a few painfully long minutes, it's Chloe versus them. Chloe eventually gets herself out of the herd and heads home to safety. She does not tell her parents or even her closest friend. Just like the crying, I held it somewhere in my body, but I didn't feel it. I was already pretty scared of the kid who actually groped me, and I just kept a distance from him. And the sadness or the tears or, you know, any emotions, I kind of shoved it somewhere. And my parents didn't know about that until I wrote an essay about it maybe seven years ago, six years ago. It's an interesting sort of statement about communication with them. Definitely, yeah. yeah. The following year, when Chloe's a freshman in high school, she meets Josh, who's a senior. They start dating, and they stay together when he goes off to college at Princeton, which is not too far. They fall in love. He really sees Chloe and knows Chloe, something she's not used to. So I definitely allowed him access to myself. You know, I think we 
experienced so many firsts together, and I really, really loved his mother and his father um, and his family in general. I think that household offered me a place of greater emotional support and just, they, you know, they would yell at each other. They would, it was just really something I had not quite seen before because I thought if you had one argument, well, there goes that relationship. So was there this sense of almost breakability in the house that you grew up in? Like there was a need to be careful with each other, like somehow like the the messiness of life, the the flaws, the messy feelings were threatening or dangerous. Definitely. In my house, my parents, when they had to have some intense conversation or if emotions ran high, they would usually close themselves behind a door. You know, and I, I understand as a parent there are times when that's appropriate, but there were also just things that involved me. And in Josh's family, when you would be there, what was the contrast? What was that like? They overwhelmed me, to be honest, um, at first. I mean, they were they were only nice to me, but they were overwhelming. All their emotions seemed on the surface. So if someone was in a bad mood or if someone was really excited, it all was right there. Whereas you know, with my family, it was just a much more guarded situation where you could just feel that, or at least I could. And it felt terrible, you know, to not know how everyone was feeling in the room. And even if it was something that you weren't feeling, can't we talk about that? I think I felt so much inside that couldn't be seen. And I feel like Dasha's family both saw it, um but also just made a space for all of that to be acceptable. Finally, with Josh's family, Chloe is surrounded by people who aren't afraid to own their feelings. Just when Chloe thinks she might be able to sustain this, to own her feelings, Josh's mom becomes sick with cancer, and Agatha is also sick. Chloe starts to dissociate again, and she does what she's done before— She floats outside herself, numb, unfeeling. It really felt like that time in my life that I couldn't show up. I mean, I think, you know, Josh and I had this lovely, beautiful relationship and between our families as well. But when it came to something as real as his mother, you know, potentially dying, I didn't face it the way I wished I had. I kind of left for college and abandoned everything behind. And broke up with him. Yes, yes, that's right. It's like the way you describe your parents leaving the first apartment in Brooklyn, you know, where all that all that hard stuff happened, your mother's miscarriage and easy dying, and yeah. just this feeling of wanting to get away from all that loss and all of the feeling that would went along with all that loss or the possibility of loss. Yeah. Josh's mom ultimately does die. So does Agatha. Loss upon loss. Sharks and wolves. Chloe weathers these storms, stabilized by her life at Williams College. She finds important mentors and begins to reinvent and discover herself there. She graduates and moves back to New York City. For the first time in her life, she is dogless. She does, however, have two cats. Good company, but not quite the same. The sensation of floating stays with her throughout her 20s. She tries to write, to build a life. Her parents are still living in Brooklyn, so they meet up occasionally, but often Chloe doesn't want to. They feel disappointed. She feels guilty. And this dance goes on for some years. She has a boyfriend and a breakup. She floats. But when Chloe is 32... Her friend Sid convinces her to meet a guy named Matt. Matt has a dog, a dog named Booker. It was really kind of an instant love, I think, for all three of us. He was standing by a big boulder near um, a trail in Brantford, Connecticut. And Sid 
drove me and her dog, JJ, out to meet them. And we went for this beautiful hike through the woods, and we just kept looking over Sid at each other and all talking the whole time. And Booker, a fairly large dog, was a big leaner, so he would he would just press his body up against your legs. Matt said at the time, oh, you're part of the pack. And uh, we started emailing. And I think it was two weeks later, we started going back and forth from Brooklyn to Connecticut. We, I don't think, spent a weekend apart for like a, a year and a half. And then I moved in with them. And Booker became an incredibly important dog to you. He really did, yeah, yeah. I mean, it really was apart from what an exceptional dog he was. And I, it's, it's interesting to think of him kind of based on his death. But I have to say, it really was, I feel like taking care of him all those years as his kind of, you know, home dog parent. And then really planning his whole death. I think I put almost every loss I've ever felt into that. <laughs> um, you know, I think I was finally ready to be, be so present. I mean, my I lost my really beloved grandfather, um, who I called Seaweed, before that. But I, it was too hard for me to even... I went to his memorial service, but it was actually quite hard for me to even go visit him in the last year of his life. He just had all these symptoms and was getting a little paranoid, and it really, I don't know, I couldn't, my mom would go religiously, which I really respect, but it was it was too hard for me. And I think Booker kind of broke something open in me that allowed me to just finally feel all those things and actually not care who thought what about whatever I was feeling and we sobbed and sobbed, you know, and buried him, and he's in our backyard. And it, it really was one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. Brutal, but beautiful. By the time of Booker's brutal, beautiful burial, Matt and Chloe have started their own family. They have a son, a daughter, and another dog, Safari. So as heartbreaking as Booker's death is, Chloe is far from alone. The heartbreak is shared and collective, as is the healing. Even as a parent and having to deal, you know, it actually gave me, given my background, it gave me some pretty tremendous anxiety to shepherd my own kids through big emotions. Because I feel like another big challenge I came up against was when I had not one kid, but two kids and had to mother siblings and all their real, very, <laughs> very surfacey emotions. And it was more than I could manage at times. I just thought, wait, this is when you don't ever talk to each other again. But that wasn't true. They would, you know, they could be mad at each other. But just like friends that I had as a kid who had siblings, they just kind of learned from each other, too. But I had to kind of shepherd them through this loss, this tremendous loss. Um, and you know, my daughter was only two, and my son was five, and they had completely different responses. Ray, who was two, she she kind of said how sad it was, but she didn't know how to, you know, she wasn't going to cry necessarily about that. but this giant dog, I mean, he was huge, and he occupied a lot of her life, was gone. So we painted rocks and took them down to his grave. And Jackson, my son, who was five, um, you know, he just kind of, he said, oh, I'm fine, you know, I'm not sad. And then that night just had a huge, huge meltdown and finally let me hug him till he sobbed and sobbed. And it was so relieving to me. It was so relieving to me to have him be able to do that. Well, and and he was able to do that because you made the space for it. Yeah, I think that's what it felt like for me, too. After Booker's death, Chloe is in therapy and finds that now, unlike her child self, 
she cannot stop crying. Her floodgates have opened, and her secretive way of processing the world, her silence, is no longer possible. She writes, I was still in the process of breaking down, of breaking systems down, systems that had formed me, systems I had relied on since before I knew the word system, systems that might have helped in childhood, but were failing me as an adult. So when I was a child and I relied on dogs so heavily, I think that was my coping mechanism for a lot of difficult situations. Just being under the piano with Agatha, when I met Booker, you know, honestly, just lying with him, walking him, getting to know him, and then wanting this other dog safari in our life. But as I, I got, I had been married to Matt and then had my kids, I was also starting to realize even though there are parts of me that probably will always be a little bit more solitary and maybe that's just my nature. I also, like, I use the phrase being the dog a lot in the book. Being the dog started to become something that felt avoidant in my family life, my own family life. So with my kids and my husband. So I think that's where it just suddenly felt like in therapy, talking about it, processing all of my childhood, and then coming to this place where I could actually make limitations. You know, I could say no. I could say what I felt. And it would be okay whether I was with a dog or a human. Or it would just become a conversation, you know, that had to be worked out, whether it was with my husband or my kids. I just could let go a little bit more of that constant need to perfect something or just be so reliable to control everything. You know, I feel like I was able to start being able to be the human, but still love dogs. Chloe also finds therapy in being physically active. She enrolls in a class called TUFF, that's T-U-F-F, Girl Fitness, Tough Girl Fitness. She feels at home the instant she walks through the doors. This class is fun and, well, tough, but that's not all. It's the antidote to floating away. To use the word strong to describe myself in any way wouldn't have felt appropriate before I started going there. And Yes, I became more physically strong, but I have to say it bled into a greater understanding and appreciation for just choices I've made. And, you know, like we, all of us getting through our childhoods, it's, it can be a lot to then become a full-grown person, you know, whether that's someone who sort of follows the path that you were, the way you were raised or if you choose something completely different. And I think I've always felt a little different, not just a little, I think a lot different. And I think that place allowed me to, you know, lift a really heavy kettlebell and scream and sweat and have people cheer for me. I mean, I, I'd never done that before. And it, it really did kind of lend such a huge helping hand to the to the rest of my growth, I have to say, just emotionally. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, to be seen. To be seen. And, you know, I just I just had this image of you lifting a kettlebell and screaming and, you know, imagining <laughs> anything like that remotely happening in the in the home of your childhood. Oh, I'd never scream. I'd never screamed before. This wonderful woman who goes there, she's a photographer. And she did these photography sessions where she would photograph whatever you wanted, you know, at the gym. And I was like, yeah, I'm doing that. And so <laughs> during ours, we were talking and I was starting to talk about my family and my emotional history and all that. And she, she just looked right at me, like after five minutes and said, have you ever screamed before? And I said, no, I would never scream. And she said, do you want to? <laughs> And so she took this picture of me screaming at the top of my lungs, and she said, I'll do it with you. And so she took a picture as she screamed at the top of her lungs, 
and we both started sobbing. It was really, really beautiful. Yeah. Family Secrets is a production of iHeartRadio. Molly Zakur is the story editor, and Dylan Fagan is the executive producer. If you have a family secret you'd like to share, please leave us a voicemail, and your story could appear on an upcoming episode. Our number is 1-888-SECRET-0. That's the number zero. You can also find me on Instagram at Danny Writer. And if you'd like to know more about the story that inspired this podcast, check out my memoir, Inheritance. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Managing your diabetes just got easier. The powerful new Dexcom G7 lets you see your glucose numbers on your compatible watch and phone without finger sticks. And because Dexcom G7 is the most accurate CGM system, you can be confident in your food, exercise, and medication decisions. And all those decisions can lead to big results like more time in range and lower A1C. Get started at Dexcom.com. Dexcom data on file 2023. If your glucose alerts and readings from the G7 do not match symptoms or expectations, use a blood glucose meter to make diabetes treatment decisions. For a list of compatible devices, visit Dexcom. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. I'm Stephanie J. Block. And I'm Mary Lee Fairbanks. And we host Stages Podcast. Binge close to 100 episodes. Hear the inside stories from backstage and behind the scenes as we go beyond the resume and into the heart of creativity and what it really takes to be in the business of show business. Don't miss our chats with this season's Tony nominees. If you love theater and entertainment, you are going to love Stages Podcast. Subscribe to Stages Podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts and visit us at stagespodcast.net.